Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Chris Baker said that uh, the only reason people have books is to have them in the background on their Zoom calls. And I thought, well, I'm using my books wrong. I need to put them behind me. So I did that. That's for Chris Baker. I guess I just noticed this. Yeah, you have a new background, don't you? Very observant. (laughs) I noticed Jonah's tree a lot more than I noticed your... Speaking of backgrounds. Your background's ridiculous, Tim, because it looks like you're trying to make it look like you have a Super Bowl trophy and a Heisman trophy. <laughs> yeah, that's why I put it there. Well, the basement is still under construction, number one. There will be something hanging here at some point, um, but I still have a bare wall down here with a big crack in it that uh, needs to be repaired, especially and now that the uh, sub, sub-freezing temperatures are going to get into the 40s this week with all that snow. I'm going to have a play a real pleasurable experience in my basement this week uh because if you look at it it's like oh that, look at yeah. that Lombardi trophy this is <laughs> this is my shred and reagan fantasy football trophy because some fan or listener of shred and reagan decided to make this obnoxious i mean this is steel this is this is a this is 40 pounds this thing and it really it it's usually Tom my or it's usually my hat rack, but yeah, there will be something hanging here at some point. Uh, I think my, uh, my Hoosiers team photo from the movie. Uh, will be there. You finally get that. What's that? You said your degree. Your diploma. Degree. <laughs> once, yeah, once I get it. Um, What's the Heisman Trophy behind you? Or it's not the Heisman Trophy, the but Heisman? it looks like the Heisman Trophy. This? Yeah. That's a boxer. That's a boxing trophy. <laughs> Uh, my Las Vegas sign. This is uh, called uh, End of the Ninth. It's a Carl Lavach sculpture that was given to me as a gift uh, when I was no longer the uh, uh, president of the Boxing Writers Association. That was my departing gift. We have uh, a Babe Ruth clock that was given to me by my grandmother. It's from the 1940s. Uh, we have a photo of Brian Sipe. Where out here we have uh, All Star Dad, which uh, is my was given to me for Father's Day a couple of years ago by my daughter. So um, probably my prized possession, and uh, a the Rocky Marciano Award from the Association for the Improvement of Boxing for uh, journalism. That was the all-star dad. Is that, that was just a one-time award. Just, I couldn't, I didn't want you, you were. <laughs> no, you can't, you actually are eligible every year. I just, I was unable to repeat. I got a little, you know, I got a little full of myself and decided I didn't need to defend it. So I don't know. 
trying to think who I, I don't know who uh, who won the next year. I wasn't even a finalist. Well, um, thanks to everyone for joining uh, Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Associates and Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic. We'll be joined later by Dan Murphy. He's a local author and uh, has a new book coming out and just had a new book come out. He's a Canisius College grad who also has spent 23 years with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. We're going to talk to him about um, how you cover wrestling, pro wrestling, the line between kayfabe and the reality of it and how it's changed over the years. He began uh, his career as a pro wrestling writer in 1997, so a lot has changed. Um, Looking forward to that uh, and learning the nuance of pro wrestling. Um, Interesting week since we were last on the Sabres started playing um, they dropped a couple of turds and uh, then won a game and uh, it just seems that uh, hey let's talk about this this is totally you guys aren't prepared for it so we'll, we'll meander through it but I think that sometimes is good uh, conversation what do you guys make of the difference between Sabres Twitter and Bill's Twitter it's, it seems significant. I don't have, I don't know. Sometimes the same people are in both behaving differently in each um, sphere. Uh, you know, I think people who are over, it is a more doom and gloom place, but that's natural. The results have been pretty bad. I think if Twitter were what it is now 10 years ago, would Bill's Twitter be the exact same thing? Would we not be able to tell them apart? Possibly, but it's football fan versus hockey fan too, I think, right? Like football, there's a lot more people. And so you get a lot more of the uh, just happy to be there, happy go lucky, the team can do no wrong type of folks. And the hockey people, you know, they're, they're the diehards. You know, if you're following the Sabres at this point, you are uh, as diehard as it gets. And you've hardened a bit uh, over the last 10 years. Sabres Twitter seems to take everything personally. But, and I think I understand. I'm not necessarily faulting them for that. I think there's a greater commitment to being a hockey fan. Than as there is opposed to, being... to Bill's Twitter that just lets everything roll off their back and they don't take anything personally. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like with what happens, I don't mean the conversation. I mean, with what they're watching of the games. Yeah. Like Ralph That's Kruger what the team is does. personally offending them. Terry yes, Pagula has wronged them for 10 years because the team isn't good. That I think you're right about that. Whereas it, and that's, what's so weird about it. It's, doubly weird because the owners are the same in both sports and this guy who's you know apparently you know intentionally ruining the hockey team uh you know the football team's doing all right you know and and they'll defend it's weird i think the difference is what tim's talking about here is that these sabers twitter does get very offended by various happenings on the ice and the product and the arena and all these things. Whereas Bill's Twitter gets offended by anybody else criticizing those things about the bills, you know, anybody poking fun at the old stadium, anybody, you know, poking fun at 
their players or any any mistake they make, they get defensive about that. I think um, that even when the Bills are bad, there was still a party to be thrown every Sunday, whether it be in the parking lot or at the bar or in your home when you'd have a group over, you'd still have a good time. Whereas you can't do that on a Tuesday night at seven o'clock. You're usually, you're probably sitting there at home, maybe watching it with your kid or a, a one buddy, but you're not having a party. You probably, there, you know what? There's probably a lot of people sitting there watching by themselves, watching a hockey game and they just want to MF something. And they just don't have a buddy to turn to, to bust balls about something else or what's going on at work. And, Cause you got to get up the next day. So maybe you just don't have, you know, you don't, you know, you don't get to go six or seven beers deep like you do at a bills game. I don't know. This is me just talking off the top of my head, but it just seems so much more, even when the bills were losing and the Sabres were losing at the, you know, the bills were in their playoff drought. Let's say, go, let's go back to the Rex Ryan era. I don't think bills Twitter was as bitter as Sabres Twitter is. I think like Matt said, it's, it's largely the same people. I don't think there's a lot of people. There's maybe some certain blogs and certain accounts that tweet about the Sabres and don't tweet about the bills and vice versa, but it's largely the same ecosystem but one thing there's two things i think that are a big difference one is sabers fan base had a civil war five or six years ago about the tank and jack that's true every sabers discussion comes back to that on twitter where the bills don't have that same you know fans at each other's throats fans that's right and then maybe to use a pro wrestling analogy here there's i notice more people in sabers twitter that are you know, trying to get themselves over to think they might be able to tweet their way into being the general manager of the Sabres or the fan liaison or running the Sabres. And in a way, it does seem like that gets more attention. Maybe it is more possible that somebody could go from being a fan of the Sabres to running the Sabres because of their fire tweets. Whereas maybe people understand that that's Kevin not Adams. possible in the NFL. Yeah, Kevin Adams sure. played for a little bit, but he came out of nowhere to be the general manager. So Maybe it is I, possible. Yeah, I mean, but I think there's people that think I can be a general manager of the Sabres better than Jason Bottrell, so I'm going to tweet out, I'm going to show you my work on Twitter, and they get a following for that maybe. And, and you don't see – maybe people do do that for the Bills as well, but it doesn't get as much traction. The NFL and the NHL are so different too. Like you said, Tim, you know, like it's more of a party with the Bills. It's one game a week, 16 games a year, plus bonus these last – you know, a few years, but there's this renewed sense of hope each each and every year. I, I think, and Tim, we've talked about this sometimes with other topics, but I think being a two-sport town and those two sports being football or one of those sports being football has kind of distorted sometimes the takes. People, I see people trying to meld they just want about, to take the foot. What happened with the Bills and say, why don't the Sabres right. do that? Yeah, go do that. You know, you draft. Hit like the reset Rasmus, button like Brandon Bean did. Just get rid right. of, you know, 70% of your roster, which you can't because they're guaranteed contracts. Or I saw, I, and I don't even know how I end up seeing some of these things. That's why I probably need to delete the app from my phone and like throw it into the Niagara River. But like there was some comparison being made, you know, if Jack Eichel was just Josh Allen, like Josh Allen, as committed as Josh Allen, the Sabres would be good by now. And it was like Taylor Hall should be the Stephon Diggs and Jeff Skinner should be John Brown. And I was just like, what, what is going on? Like, like what, what is all of this? Um, and I think that becomes a problem. Like Rasmus Dahlin is the number one overall pick. 
And he has not been a slam dunk to this point in his career, but he's still a very, very young man. Um, in football, by this point, you'd be making a determination on him one way or the other. And people are trying to do that already. And it happens with a lot of stuff. I mean, even Jack Eichel is still very young. Now he's, I mean, he's an established star, but there's, yeah, the timeline aspect of it. Oh, they went out and got Taylor Hall. It's just like the Bills getting Stephon Diggs. That'll put them over the top. It's like, well, it's a little bit more complicated, um, you know, and that part of it, I think, becomes a little bit screwy. And I th- I, the reason I say that is I've, I've noticed this dynamic with the Sabres that, and I, this was like last week, it's, it's interesting to not be engrossed in it and just kind of follow it, you know, differently than the Bills and be like, man, what is going on with the Sabres? Because people are tweeting like this thing has just gotten out of control. And you look and they're like five and seven. And it's like, well, it's not that bad. But like they lose a game and it's like when the Bills lose a game you know, once a week occurrence, but one game in hockey is a lot different than one game in football, but it doesn't always get treated that way. Sabres Twitter in the course of a game is a wild ride because if they get down a goal, if you're trying to follow along, if you're just looking on Twitter, you'd think that the Sabres were down five, nothing with, you know, that this team's dog shit, you know, trade them all. I'm done with this team. I'm never going to watch another game. And then you look a couple hours later and the Sabres won three to two. You know, it's like, I mean, I'm not saying that within the last couple of weeks, that's been the case, but over the years, that's a, that's a common, that's a reoccurring thing is fans who are just done with this team. Um, I don't have any way to quantify it, but obviously they keep coming back to some degree or else we wouldn't be seeing these conversations made on, on social media. Uh, but I, I wonder really what the ratings are or the um, you know, what the internal, numbers are regarding how many people are still with this team in terms of the fans um, after all these years. I'm wondering if some of the online behavior and and movements that we've seen with the Bills fans, the Bills Mafia and the charity and and also, you know, ganging up on media people and and Twitter accounts that say things Bills fans don't like, would that happen with the Sabres? You don't seem to see that quite as much or am I just not following the right accounts? People don't seem to go fight on behalf of the Sabres online as much as they do Bills fans. There's no reason for them to be indignant because the Sabres aren't any good. So I think that they need at least a little something to, to rub in people's faces. I think that maybe nothing to back up their defense. And sometimes that's not a prerequisite for them behaving that way about the bills either. Um, but they feel that way. Uh, the Sabres have been so bad for so long that, yeah, there's, but you're right, Jonah, there is not nearly as much of that. There's not, you know, they hire Kevin Adams. You don't see a lot of people being like, Hey, just give them a chance. You know, it's like, here we go again. Uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, you have a lot more freedom to, to criticize the team, same fan base, very sensitive about criticizing the bills, but they say, have at it with those Sabres, like do your, you need some success. Like for instance, if Jack Eichel had been a 50 goal scorer, uh, you wouldn't see, even if everything else was the same uh, this season, Uh, people have really, the the appetite for defending Jack Eichel seems to have vanished. 
people, people were, used to defend Jack Eichel like they did Josh Allen. I'm sorry, Jonah. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, Bills fans, the Bills were bad for a long time. They had that 17-year playoff shot. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. But and people defended J.P. Lossman and Lee Evans and different Bills players on Twitter as well. I just and the Sabers. Now that I think about it, I do see a little bit of this with people I know. But the Bills fans online have this. It's not always about the Bills. It's really about us. It's about the fan base. It's about we're the best fans. We're the most charitable fans. We're the most passionate fans. We're the craziest fans. Whatever we want to be, you know, whatever we want to project. And the Sabers fans. There was a little bit of that maybe with the Pagulaville and the hockey heaven a few years ago, but there's a lot less of that. And I wonder if it has anything to do with, you know, when you sell half the tickets to Canadian fans, when the Maple Leafs are in town, if maybe there's less pride from the fan base, it might have something to do with the product on the ice. But when the bills were losing the fan, the the stadium was still sold out and nobody was ashamed to wear their Zubas and be a bills fan. But there's less of that when the Sabres are losing. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's a great point. The the selling of Maple Leafs or to the Canadians fans so that way they can um you know, they can finance their season tickets or whatever. But yeah, you 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 have that you would never have that with a Bills game. Uh, or at least it doesn't seem that way. I mean, I mean during the drought, we're I guess the Steelers, yeah, when the Steelers came to town, you'd have an awful lot of Steelers fans who I do right, remember some of it because it's a financial decision yeah. for a lot of people. But I guess maybe Matt brought up the point earlier that tells that story is that the Bills games are a party. It's a big, the tailgate culture is there and people enjoy and appreciate and are proud of being Bills fans beyond what happens on the football field. And with the Sabres game, it really is a lot more about the game than anything else. Yeah, it's much more of a casual thing with the Bills. It's easier to stomach a bad Bills team and tune in once a week or half tune in I think people just tune out if you're a casual fan of the Sabres you just you get to this point you read the discourse online and you just say well this this team's not capturing my attention that 10 game winning streak a few years ago you know that'll that'll draw you in and you'll pay attention and enjoy watching the games but there's not the same ease of access I feel like you know you're you're not like you said Tim you're going to sit there on a Tuesday night at seven o'clock, you know, you watch a period all of a sudden, you know, first intermission comes around and you're on your phone and you're flipping channels and you forget to go back because they're that kind of team. You're, they're not drawing you in and the people that are forcing themselves, because that's the only real explanation I could find at this point, these people that are like, I am a fan of this team and damn it, I'm going to watch all these games. Um, and I, I, I watch a lot of them too, so I'm not uh, judging anyone for how they spend their time, but um, there's a, there's kind of an, an anger, a shared anger, uh, a group therapy uh, element to the, the Twitter where they just, they let a lot of that anger out in their tweets. And so it's, it's, uh, it's dark sometimes. It's not a, not a fun place to be. No. And, uh, so it's amazing to see how distorted, maybe it's not amazing, I guess, but it's so distorted to the darkness. And whereas the bills, it's the exact opposite. So distorted to everything is awesome. You know, you can't, you can't say anything bad about the bills. Uh, and you can't say you dare try to say something positive about the Sabres without getting, 
without getting dogpiled um, on, on social media. Um, before we get to Dan Murphy, um, let's talk a little college hoops. Um, St. Bonaventure with a win over Davidson, which was very important for the Bonnies. Um, Canisius is winning some basketball games. Um, what they, do you, they lost their most recent game. They had five game winning streak right. before losing at Fairfield. But uh, where do things stand with all the different uh, big four teams, Jonah? Give, give us a little thumbnail. Well, Bono won at home against Davidson on Saturday, which was a pretty big win for them. They jumped from 45 to 37 in the NCAA net rankings and 42 on Kempom, a similar jump. They put themselves on a much better bubble position and also tied for first place in the Atlantic 10 Conference. So much greater chance of St. Bonaventure being a tournament team from that game. They played Davidson on the road again on Wednesday. Uh, another win that would really help their case. If they lost, they might be back where they were about a week ago. UB lost um, at home against, I was there, why is it my drawing a blank on who they played? Toledo, the first place in the MAC. That was a big game for UB. It was a tight game. They had the lead and chances to win that game didn't play so well at the end of both UB halves. looked really sloppy, I they, thought. UB looked very sloppy. And Toledo, I didn't think, played that great either. I think UB let Toledo steal that game in some ways. UB was playing harder for much of the game and looked maybe more athletic. And like they should have won the game, I thought. A lot of unforced of errors, you know, but bad passes, plays stepping on shots. the end line. Yep. They just didn't. A lot of missed shots, like a lot of really easy point blank shots. That right. Were, well, they were contested. Well, but free throws. They, they weren't falling. They missed open three-point shots and they struggled. But they played well for portions of the game. They had the lead and against Toledo, you know, I think they played well enough to win at times and could have won that game but made too many mistakes in key situations at the end of both halves. But the, the trend now with UB is they're seven and five in the MAC, but they're 0 and five against the MAC teams with winning records. And those seven wins have come against four teams. They've beaten uh, three teams twice each. So they're actually, if you go, you know, who they've beaten and who they've not beaten, four and five against the MAC teams they've gone up against. So they're in, you can look at them through one lens through the fact that they've beaten some teams. Every game they've won has been by 15 plus points. So on some analysis, Ken Palm, things like that, they look like a top two team in the MAC but they haven't beaten any of the other top five or six teams. And it's hard to really project that they can go and win a conference tournament when they haven't yet been able to beat one of the better teams in the league. Now they have two quote unquote, easier games coming up against Mac West division teams. Some of the Michigan teams or Northern Illinois and central Michigan. They should win those two. And then they have some tougher games at the end against Akron and Kent state. If at home, if they win one or two of those games at the end of the regular season, you might change their analysis of who they are going into the postseason. But right now you can't expect UB to really go very far in the postseason if they haven't beaten another good team in their own conference yet. Niagara split to a, they had a home series against Siena, which is the best team in the MAC. They won the first game, lost the second. Um, all of Niagara's one game under 500 and the other teams are over 500. So in one sense, I remember a couple of years ago, that was a really big story that all four of the teams were winning teams at the same time. And it could finish that way again, although Niagara would have to, they play Canisius. So that might spoil that opportunity for both teams to be over 500. All right, here we go. Damon, well, why don't we mention, cause we mentioned Damon last week, Andrew Cisco over 2000 points, 1000 rebounds for his career. I counted Juan Mendez, 
and Bob Lanier as the only local players, Juan Mendez from Niagara, Bob Lanier, obviously St. Bonaventure, that have gotten those numbers. So it might be another one, but I, I can't think of another Western New York big man that had as productive a career as Andrew Cisco is still having at Damon. What about, and I'm just throwing it out there, I'm, I'm get, did you look up Randy Smith at Buff State? Well, he wouldn't have gotten 1,000 rebounds, but maybe I'll look that up. But he, he would be maybe a – he probably did score 2,000 points. And maybe – Just because that was D, D3 or whatever it was. Uh, but if Cisco – there's being players D2. that are close. Uh, Javon McCray, who was UB's all-time leading scorer. I think he still is. I don't know if CJ Massenburg passed him or not. He had 2,000 points and 988 rebounds. So there's a few people that came close. But you really – you got to be a 20-10 and 10 player for a four-year career to have that opportunity to be a 2,000, 1,000 guy. He's the only – he's the second player in Damon's conference, East Coast Conference. While we're mentioning Damon, I should also note Damon women are having a very good year, nationally ranked, and they will be hosting the first round of the NCAA tournament, whether they're playing in it or not. But with the way they're playing and the way they likely will be seated, they'll probably be hosting home games that they're playing in in the NCAA tournament. I tried to look up Randy Smith's stats at Buff State, but uh, his his Hall of Fame page at Buffalo State does not have stats, really. Just, uh, he was just a guard. His... I mean, I'm sure he was a very athletic player. I'm sure he had solid rebounding numbers for a guard, but I'd be surprised if he had 1,000 rebounds in his career at Buff State. Plus, he might have not been able to play as a freshman back then. He also played soccer, so maybe if you count his soccer goals and assists and slide tackles or whatever else you track. Okay, Jonah. We'll do that. Uh, hey, let's, uh, let's take a little break, and then we're going to hear from Dan Murphy, from formerly of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, local author from Cardinal O'Hara High and Canisius College. Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Dan Murphy is a local author and pro wrestling writer, and he's joining Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, uh, to talk about his career and whatever the hell else we feel like talking about. I don't think there are going to be many rules uh, during this interview. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining the show. And No problem. Uh, yeah, thanks how for do the you... invitation. My pleasure. Pleasure's all, all ours. Um, how do you get into being a pro wrestling writer uh, after graduating from Canisius College with a degree in communications, English. was it? English, yeah. English, okay. Major. Yeah, um, it's and I was a wrestling fan, you know, growing up. Uh, I was 10 years old when the first WrestleMania happened, so I was kind of right in that target demographic, you know, that age group for Hulk Hogan and rock and wrestling and MTV and everything. 
and and I kind of followed it, uh, you know, throughout high school and and you know, be into college and, and so on. I was a wrestling fan. I always read the wrestling magazines. But uh, after graduating college in '96, I started up with the the B newspapers here in in Amherst, the Amherst B. I was eventually the editor of the East Aurora B. Uh, but they brought me on as a sports reporter and. Uh, one of the first UFC events is going to take place right around late 96, early 97 up at the Niagara Falls convention center. And there was some crossover with UFC and wrestling at the time. You know, there's some UFC guys are getting into wrestling and back and forth. Uh, but the New York state legislature wanted to make it basically as, as boring as possible so that they wouldn't run in New York state anymore. And at the, you know, a couple weeks before the event, they came up with some laws that uh, participants had to wear headgear, they had to wear these padded gloves, there were certain strikes that weren't allowed. And uh, I found the editorial office for PWI for Pro Wrestling Illustrated and called. And I got Stu Sachs, the publisher on the phone, and I'd been reading his stuff for 10 years, uh, said, hey, I, I can get press passes for this. I know you don't normally cover MMA or UFC, but it's unique. The guys are going to wear this headgear and everything. And, and uh, there's some crossover with pro wrestling. He said, you know, if you can get me photos and get in there, maybe. And I thought I can find some, I'll bring a disposable camera if I have to, like it's a national magazine, first national byline. Uh, a couple days before the event, they moved it down to Dothan, Alabama. So I was kind of out of luck, uh, called Stu to let him know. And he says, well, you know, it sounds like, you know, your stuff. How about you send us a few clips? And from there, I was kind of off and running. And I spent the next 22 years writing for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. What, uh, what clips do you send Pro Wrestling Illustrated? From the Bee or from the Griffin? Or no. <laughs> what do you, what are your I had clips? plenty from both, yeah. What he wanted me to do is he wanted to see if I understood what the Pro Wrestling Illustrated style was. Because PWI, it, it you know, uh, it, it kept kayfabe, which in wrestling is you stick to the storylines. But there were times where you also had to report the news. Uh, a wrestler died, you know, the Von Erichs dying. And you had to approach things like that with straight journalism. Uh, other things you kind of did in, in storyline or in kayfabe. And uh, as, as one of the editors, Brandy, uh, told me when I first started with PWI, uh, wrestling writing is one half being a serious journalist and one half working for Marvel Comics. It's make-believe, and you have to weave it in and stick to storylines, but also have that objectivity and the journalism and everything underpinning it all. Uh, so what they had me do is, um, he said, send in three articles that would look like they'd fit in PWI. And I did one on WCW, one on the WWF, and one on ECW, you know, again, mid-90s, to let them know I was aware of the different companies came up with a, a storyline, wrote it in kind of a worked kayfabe, you know, because it's, it's not for publication. It was just like a test and uh, sent those in within a day or two, you know, quick turnaround. And uh, he liked it. And, uh, you know, then it kind of got one from there. I want to delve into that a little bit more if we can, that line yeah. between kayfabe and straight journalism uh, and maybe how it's changed since you got into it in 1997 uh, and should be noted, you don't write for Pro Wrestling Illustrated anymore. You, and we'll get into your reasons behind that. And maybe this, the answer to this question plays into it a little bit. I don't know. But as wrestling has become a, its own, a, a bigger industry, I think, in terms of more mainstream awareness, how has the line changed, if at all? It, it completely changed. Um, in, in the 
eighties when I kind of discovered wrestling and you know, we're all seem to be about the same age. If, if you guys are wrestling fans, you probably discovered it around the same time or maybe early nineties. Um, the magazines were all kayfabe and everybody kind of kept kayfabe. Once the internet came around and you had ECW on TV kind of breaking boundaries a little bit more and acknowledging that there was a booker and that there were things and, you know, whatever um, you began to, the magazine decided to kind of stick to kayfabe, but realized that there were certain things that we couldn't do anymore. Um, you know, Kamala wasn't really a Ugandan savage. It was, it was James Harris from Mississippi who pl- portrays Uganda or portrays Kamala, uh, things like that. And we gradually began to get more into shoot interviews where we talked to the wrestlers, but keep the questions based on storylines. So they were kind of answering in character. If there was something else that we wanted to broach, we could, but it was kind of a gradual progression. And um, we still kind of kept, uh, Stu Sachs had, had been with the magazine since it started in, in 79. He was very traditional, and I think he kind of maintained that sense. But it was a moving thing where every year we kind of got a little bit more into breaking kayfabe, and, but trying to still keep the magazine so that you could be a 10-year-old who picks it up because you love John Cena and, and appreciate it for what it is, but also be a smart fan and understand what's going on behind the scenes. So it was a difficult line at, at a lot of times, but it was something that we had to go through as the internet became more, you know, pervasive. How did you manage to, you know, you get into this as, you know, like you said, a big fan of wrestling at first, uh, and that's where the enthusiasm comes from. You know, we always have, you know, covering sports, there's that fine line uh, that seems to get blurred more and more these days between fan and journalist. But how did you see the, Seeing it up close, how did that impact the enthusiasm you felt for it? How did that evolve over time as you kind of, you got to see how the sausage was made a little bit more than most people? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a lot to that, actually. Um, on one hand, you know, I was always a, a fan and, and realized, you know, the best thing to do, especially even as a young reporter, um, you know, because I'd covered the NFL and NHL a little bit, you know, it was a full-time beat, but I covered some things you know, knew enough to, to not make an ass of myself, you know, stay quiet, look like I know what I'm doing, you know, stay out of the way. Just like observe. the rest of us on this zoom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just, just enough, not, not to embarrass yourself. Just that's enough. it. So Have usually a, a question or two in, in mind. So if you got an opportunity, you're not going to stammer and you're good and you know, you can get out. Um, and again, Brandy, Brandy Mankevich uh, was kind of one of my mentors at the magazine. She, she took over the heel columnist role that used to be Eddie Elner. And it's funny because, you know, people always think that a lot of PWI writers weren't real people. Uh, Brandy, her, her writing character was a young, attractive, redheaded, 20-something-year-old year woman. And, of course, everybody thought, well, that's fake. But, no, she was. She really was that. Um, but what she told me early on is that, uh, you know, it's never about us. Don't try to be the next Bill Apter. Don't try to be somebody that, you know, the story is about you always try to put the focus on the wrestlers, which, which makes sense. Uh, so for a lot of years, I kind of didn't do, I mean, podcasts weren't really a thing, um, but I just kind of went about, I mean, there were no pictures of me showing up in the magazine. I wasn't doing anything when social media first kind of came out. Gradually things kind of changed and adapted, but uh, over time I began to know a lot of the wrestlers personally. Um, I mean, you know, doing it for 22 years, you you get to know everybody on their way up, you know? Uh, So then it it became more about being a fan of wrestling, like I was, to being a point of, I'm a fan of my friends and I want to see what they're doing and and how things are working out for them. 
Um, so there's a lot of kind of how it all revolves. Um, but yeah, it, it went to be just, you know, how one of the best experiences that I had uh, through the years is I got to be backstage as much as I wanted to be. And I was backstage in Louisville, Kentucky, when uh, Jim Cornette was putting together Ohio Valley wrestling shows. I was backstage for ECW listening to Paul Heyman talk to Tommy Dreamer and everybody else. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I did a two-day uh, dojo in Baltimore for Ring of Honor, where they did tryouts with all the new kids for the Ring of Honor kind of developmental group. And you spend hours and hours absorbing all these lessons on this is ring psychology. This is what you should do. This is what your character should be. All of this stuff. And uh, I eventually kind of got to the point where I, and this sounds terrible, um, but I felt like I knew more about wrestling and what it took to be a pro wrestler than a lot of the people in WWE. And I think at that point, the jadedness kind of came in. It's like, you know, what they're doing is not what it used to be. And that's kind of what led me in a roundabout way to getting out of the magazine. What kind of access do you get as a wrestling journalist or do wrestling journalists get now? There's a lot of wrestling writing on the internet, but I think it's changed in a way over the years. You know, if you look at the PWI or the after mags, they used to always have ringside photographers. And I don't know if that happens as much anymore. I don't think the Buffalo news, for example, could get a photographer ringside for a WWE show in town. How have you think seen things change over the years in terms of access there's definitely been ups and downs in fact wwe is a lot better now than they have been in the past um i mean they they green light interviews a, a lot more um you know I, in fact i i just did a book that's coming out you can see it over here uh, the wrestlers wrestlers the masters of the craft of professional wrestling uh that comes out in april and uh i really wanted uh william regal to do the foreword and contacted WWE's PR department, said, hey, would, you know, is there any way we can make this happen? Knowing that normally they don't allow anything like that. Um, I had Natalia do the foreword of a book I did in 2017, uh, Sisterhood of the Squared Circle. But that was one of these things where kind of Natalia did it and then asked for forgiveness afterwards, you know, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I went through to try to go through the proper channels and knowing that 99% chance WWE would turn it down because it wasn't a WWE publication. It was coming out with ECW press. It's not normally the thing they do. Um, they said, yeah, uh, we'll let him read it and see if he wants to do it. Uh, what ended up happening is he read it. We had a long conversation the book talks a lot about Chris Benoit and because of his personal closeness to Chris Benoit, he chose not to do the forward, uh, but we had a very long conversation about it. He really liked the book. Uh, but long story short, WWE has gotten a lot better. Uh, at, when I first started with PWI, um, we couldn't have ringside photographers at WWE. They still had guys shooting from the stands. Uh, now it's worked out really well where uh, WWE will give us photos or give PWI photos. Uh, they do allow ringside photographers. It's just a matter of kind of uh, regaining trust and, you know, making sure that you're somebody who's trying to promote the business or help with the business rather than trying to profit off the business or tear it down. You know, if you if you get the reputation that you're trying to just, you know, get the dirt or, or, you know, release private information on booking plans or some of the workers, then, you know, your reputation's kind of shot. But if you're, you know, going above board and uh, everything, they tend to be pretty good. Dan, what is your opinion on shoot journalism? And it seems to be, and I have a very, I'm on the periphery of this. Um, 
so I'm asking this question. This might be uh, an answer that everybody in the business knows. Uh, but uh, so I'm asking, it seems to have gotten more significant in recent years and maybe because of podcasts and you get guys who are willing to talk uh, who are not on contract or they're out of the business and maybe because of the access of the internet. And, and you know, so you see more uh, the shoot aspect of it. And, and I guess hopefully I'm using the terminology correctly. Shoot journalism or shoot interviews are, are done. It's, it's nonfiction, right? It's the real person talking about the other real people in the well, business and I'll behind tell you the what, scenes. Though, it's not necessarily nonfiction. It's not kayfabe, but a lot of times a shoot can be a wrestler who's just spinning his own narrative, you know, uh, Old time wrestlers are old time wrestlers. Even new guys, you know, they'll say what they want. Well, you get the that in, the, in NFL and NHL journalism too, right? That's true. That is true. Yeah. But at least it's not, uh, yeah. So I, I guess, is it good for wrestling? Do you think that, um, well, that this side is, is coming out more? It's a complicated question. I think, I, I, I think it's interesting. Um, and I, I like listening to shoot interviews and, and, you know, some are definitely better than others and some are really revealing and, and some are, have some, some kind of, uh, you know, um, lessons that, that can be learned, you know, about the history or about, you know, somebody working a match and something that happened and cool little anecdotes. Others are just kind of guys burying each other or putting themselves over things like that. So, you know, it varies. I personally think that what made wrestling uh, unique was when the characters were larger than life and that they were portraying the, these kind of characters and the, the shoot like magic, it, it opens up the curtain and shows everything, the, the backstage goings on. And some guys have made it work for them. Uh, you know, you look at like Xavier Woods and everything he's done with up, up, down, down, and, and what some of these guys are doing with Twitch and other stuff, they've become celebrities for being themselves. But I think that that really kind of hurts the wrestling business because these guys no longer feel like uh, big megastars as pro wrestlers, larger than life figures. They're just kind of YouTubers, you know, and it, maybe it's just the business changing and everything else. But I think, although obviously the past year isn't a good gauge with coronavirus virus and everything, uh, but you see house shows just dropping and dropping and TV ratings dropping. And the wrestling industry will, will always say, well, it's because there's more channels. People aren't on cable. Of course, that ratings are going to go down. But I just don't think that there's as widespread interest in pro wrestling now as there was five years, 10 years, definitely 15, 20 years ago. That doesn't mean that the money's not there. WWE has never been more profitable. But in terms of, you know, butts and seats, to use the old metric, it's just not what it used to be. And I think things like shoots kind of do that by demystifying the product a little bit. I've had this discussion with Jonah a bunch of times uh, that my fascinate, I, I'm fascinated by pro wrestling. Now, I couldn't necessarily tell you who all the characters are, what the storylines are, but the, the shows like The Dark Side of the Ring, uh, The Wrestlers, both of these series on, um, uh, on Vice, um, I couldn't get enough of it. The sociology or the, the lifestyle of wrestling uh, is amazing to me. I mean, because it is, there is some, some dark corners of it. And yet so much of it too is kind of frivolous and fun. And um, I guess it's, it's, it's just like any other cross section of, of the entertainment industry, I think. And wrestling, I don't know, for some reason, it's been sitting there for so long, people haven't been examining it. Uh, and now 
in a, in these documentaries are starting to, to get into that. And it's, it's, it enthralls me. Yeah. It's uh, every year I go to the, the cauliflower alley club reunion out in Las Vegas. And it is just basically a benevolent fund and, and this group of guys, all these retired wrestlers who get together and they raise money for, you know, these guys didn't have health insurance and they didn't necessarily know how to spend their money. Uh, we gave money recently to Brickhouse Brown, who had terminal cancer, uh, Kamala. He was going to lose his house. He had both of his legs amputated. And I, I've known Kamala really well. I actually was his, you know, Kim Chi, his trainer. I did that gimmick on the Indies with him a bunch of times. Um, you know, wearing the mask and the, the safari suit and everything um, because he was just a great guy and I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but anyway, the Cauliflower Alley Club, in addition to kind of being just this great, great fraternal and benevolent association uh, for four days, uh, you know, you go to a little sports bar in the back of the Gold Coast and I was able to sit down every night with uh, at my table, a couple other writers, uh, Pat Patterson, or I'm sorry, Pat Patterson, uh, Gerald Briscoe, you'd have some other writers there. Mean Gene Okerlund would come over. In comes B. Brian Blair, uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, and just kind of guys holding court and telling stories. And it's just so amazing to hear the stories that these guys have had throughout their careers that, you know, they, they've told each other, but they've never done the shoot interviews. They've never done books or anything else. And we're, we're kind of getting some of those stories out there now, but yeah, these, the wrestlers and the wrestling business is so unique. And the more you hear about it, the more kind of uh, uh, incredible the, the whole kind of uh, backstage life was. One thing I'd like to maybe kind of counterpoint or clarify for Tim or so, what he's mentioned. I, I wouldn't say what, what you call shoot journalism is really anything that new. It, it was new maybe 25 years ago at some point in the 90s when the internet really fueled that change. But, you know, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, a lot of different things on the internet that started around that time, uh, documentaries beyond the mat, Wrestling with Shadows, those are all things that were produced and published in the 90s. But it has become so much more mainstream and popular with maybe the newer technologies or the popularity of podcasts or a network like a and &E, I think that's what Dark Side of the Ring is on, choosing to tell these stories. You know, the Von Erichs and Bruiser Brody and things like that. None of that's new information, but doing it with modern technologies and modern production values. And it's found an audience with someone like Tim who maybe wasn't reading the rumor reports about wrestling and all these stories, but was entertained by being able to retell these stories. And so, yeah, because you, have to, you had to go looking for that. You know, those, those, uh, what do you call them? Dirt sheets. Yeah. Um, you'd have yeah. to go looking for them as opposed to now, you know, when I'm doing my, I wrote my story on Lex Luger a couple of years ago and I, I Google Lex Luger and all of this stuff's coming up. That was a surprise to me. Cause I, in my mind, I thought all this stuff was supposed to be secret. Like, you know, these stories aren't supposed to be told. And I think, and, and, and I was, wonder 30, 40 years ago, that was something that you could get. In, right. You know, See, you I get, in big and physical trouble for, for breaking case. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even as 10 to 12 years ago in some areas. Yeah. Breaking terror. Uh, was still a, a major taboo. So do you find, or do or maybe this is just me talking out loud as we're getting into this, uh, that if you were into the shoot side of wrestling, are you, were you considered a fan that had to pick sides because there was still that wink and a nod, of there's still and there still are probably some fans who refuse to believe that that it's fake uh but 
when it comes to the journalism side of it and it gets to you know dan's career at at pro wrestling illustrated of that line do, are you do, did fans or readers almost are they picking not picking sides but and i there's a question in there that i'm trying to articulate just as what you know jonah brought up of um of now everything's kind of being pushed together in this stew that is it allows a fan to uh, feel like he's still a, a legitimate fan and can allow himself to look behind the curtain. Whereas before that was, you weren't supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, w- what really happened is you had Vince McMahon um, testifying and going in front of the New Jersey athletic commission back in the, I think 93 that uh, pro wrestling was predetermined. It was not an, you know, sport. And everybody had kind of known that, but when the owner of the WWF, testifies to that effect you know things kind of changed um but you, you, there's the modern day fan consumes the sport very differently you know it used to be fans would go watch it on tv and go to the arena and you know maybe buy whatever merchandise is available in the 80s 90s and so on it obviously got much bigger in the 80s and you know became a more global uh commodity with uh, the rise of the wwf uh today the average fan i think they're on Reddit all the time, Reddit squared circle. They're on all the different websites, which carry all sorts of stuff. They're following a lot of the fans or the the wrestlers themselves on Twitter, on Twitch, on whatever media. So they're consuming it in all these different ways and then still watching the product. So there's this incredible thing that, that still happens where the fans know it's all a work that they know that and they know everyone's real names and what things are. And, you know, but when they turn, tune into the product they still suspend that disbelief but they're hypercritical of it i mean uh, these days this this generation of wrestling fan everybody is, is an arm armchair booker you know um maybe that's because everybody has more access to the shoots and behind the scenes and they think well knowing what i know i think it should be done like this or knowing what i know about this person in real life i think that this person should be rewarded and this person taken down on the card so it it has kind of changed it but i don't think the fans are kind of like it used to be the the smart fans and the marks anymore i think everybody is just kind of this in between a little bit of both all makes sense to me <laughs> yeah it's almost like entertainment journalism in that way it's it's like yeah if you can accept it as there's still suspense right it's almost like a tv show you know that it's a tv show but it's you still don't know what's going to happen and so like you know you you can you can see you can watch tmz on on britney spears for example and and download uh, a Britney Spears set list and you know she's doing the same songs in order you know that's what she's done every show of the tour and still go to the show and enjoy it knowing what she's going to do next knowing that it's all pre-choreographed everything else and knowing all the behind the scenes stuff about her the fans are still able to say I, I enjoy the performance for what it is but it's a very different experience than it used to be back in the 70s and 80s and even 90s I think that um... I think you see it Oh, go ahead, Tim. No, no. Uh, well, I was just going to make a, a, a quick uh, comment that it sounds like Sabres fans reading John Vogel's stories. Uh, they know uh, the, he's, they've been reading these stories for 10 years and uh, they still keep reading the stories. <laughs> I, I was I was making a joke. I'm sorry, Joe. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think you see examples of it uh, or an influence in political coverage, especially the more partisan political coverage is really covering uh, 
politics from a kayfabe perspective. Some do it more blatantly than others, but you see it really on both sides and in both elements. And it has creeped into some sports journalists. I, I would say something like what John Vogel or what you guys write for the athletic is not an example of this, but there's very team friendly or, you know, Nick Wright kind of some of the stuff he says and does about the bills and different teams is a very, I think, pro wrestling style of media coverage. Rick Santorum on CNN. He's brought in to be the heel because right. CNN, he has a job to do and his job people get crazy. They go crazy at what Rick Santorum has to say, but he knows he's there to present the side, no matter how difficult it is, he's there to present the Republican side. And so people are like, how can you have this guy on the air? And it's like, they specifically want this guy on the air. Yeah. You got to have, I mean, heels, heels versus baby faces. You're right. That's, that's what it all boils down to. That's what the entertainment, good, good versus bad, depending on your point of view, you know, but that's, that's what works. Dan, I, I don't want to spend the entire podcast talking about pro wrestling, but I guess maybe to wrap it up in a bow with the last question, you don't do as much of it as you used to, and you're getting more into uh, writing books. Um, yeah. What, uh, what was it that, that has kind of, that has changed your, uh, perspective and uh, and you no longer write for pro wrestling illustrated yeah I, I finally stopped I, I felt obligated for a long time because I was uh, really doing the PWI 500 and the women's 100 uh, which are huge projects the 500 especially you know you have to you know not only list all the wrestlers and rank them but write bios on each of them make sure you have their height and their weight and finishing moves and guys change their finishing moves you can't just use what they did last year uh, so that took a lot of time. And for a lot of time, even as I was kind of uh, getting a little bit more jaded with wrestling, I felt like, oh, that's my, my baby. I don't want to leave it quite yet. And then I finally decided, uh, you know, at some point, I remember watching a WrestleMania and it was just such a long show. And all of the matches were the, the psychology, the traditional psychology. Uh, wrestling, and you guys probably know this, but every match should have this, this kind of formula. And it's, it's the shine from the baby face right at the beginning. Then there's the cutoff where the heel does something to, to, you know, breaks the rules to some degree to stop the baby face. Then the heat beating down the baby face. There's the hope spot where the baby face is coming back more heat, another hope spot. And then you kind of go into the finish. Every wrestling match has that type of variation. That's, that's how the structure works. And the genius is what you can do within that, 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 that kind of very basic, flow chart what you see now a lot of times with wrestling and it used to just be on the independence but now it's across the board even in new japan um the guy comes out with the exact same entrance kind of routine next guy does it and then they just hit themselves hit each other with video game moves for the whole match like i'm hitting you with this move you're hitting me with this move and the drama the suspense the storytelling is kind of lost and I know I sound like an old kind of Jim Cornette jaded old man when I say things like that, but it, it became no longer fun for me to watch. And uh, at some point I realized, you know, I can just write about everything they're doing wrong and, and why this is no good. And this is no good. And, you know, the same things I hear from guys at the cauliflower alley club and the same thing I would have heard from Jim Cornette at OVW and Paul Heyman with ECW and everything else. Or I can just say, you know what, it's just not my thing anymore. I'll step aside and focus on something else and leave this for some people who really do love it. So that's what I did. So after 22 years with PWI, I kind of stepped away in, in 2019. Uh, I was all done with it. And uh, I'm focusing on doing some more of the books. 
So I have done uh, Sisterhood of the Squared Circle, the history of women's pro wrestling with Pat LaProd. Have another one coming out in April, the uh, Wrestlers, Wrestlers, the Masters of the Craft of Professional Wrestling. And I'm currently working on uh, a biography of Ed Don George, a Buffalo guy, three-time world champion in the 1930s, who just had one of the most incredible, fascinating lives ever. And there's so little that's out there about him. And I found kind of a treasure trove of old articles and photos, and I'm working on that right now. So I'm doing a little bit more of the history and, and less on the, the kind of weekly product. And in another book, you didn't mention Body Slams in Buffalo. I've seen this at local bookstores. I think they keep it in stock, and, and usually it's in a local section. Yeah, that was my well second book. Uh, the first book I ever did was uh, History of the Erie Canal for Brian Meyer. He, he did... Uh, Western New York Wares, a Buffalo-based publishing company. And uh, right out of college, I had uh, had a summer job working as a deckhand on my uncle. My uncle has uh, tour boats on the Erie Canal, uh, Lockport Locks and Erie Canal Cruises. So in the summer, I'd work on the boat, kind of serving, you know, beers, taking care of the boat, cleaning up, helping people board on board. And during these cruises up through the locks, you get all these people asking questions about the history of the canal. And I, I kind of thought, you know, there's books very dense uh, scholarly books about why the canal was built and, and everything, but not a lot in terms of like a really short tourist friendly $10 book that answers all the frequently asked questions that I, I got, at, you know, working on the boat. So I came up with the idea, met Brian Meyer and uh, pitched it. He agreed to do it. And I came out with a book in, I think 2001, uh, the Erie canal, the ditch that opened a nation. And, uh, it sold out between, I think, five different editions. We sold about 15,000 copies. Uh, it's, let it go out of press now because it was just getting dated and everything else. And, but uh, because it did so well right away, Brian says, hey, this, this is great. Do you have another idea? And uh, I decided to try to do a wrestling book on Buffalo's history. But the problem at that time, uh, now there's a lot of books on the regional territories of wrestling. Uh, Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs about Montreal, Drawing Heat down in Memphis, a few others that are out there. At that time, there weren't many. And um, I tried to do a book that fit kind of Brian's niche of very brief, a long bit, of, you know, a little bit on the early history, a little bit about the current stars, a little bit about this. And it's a really superficial treatment. And it did well. I mean, it's still, like you said, in, in print, it's still out there and people still bring it around. Uh, I really wish that book could have been three or four much deeper and, and more uh, solid books, I think, but uh, to try to do like, just kind of for the casual fan, uh, which is what Brian really encouraged. That's uh, that's what I did. So is there a, a new book or a different version of that book that you think you could write? I mean, this one's 2002, so it's been almost 20 years and, you know, a lot has happened uh, both in Buffalo and in wrestling since then. I've had a lot. I, I, I've had a lot of people ask that. And, and, and definitely there's a lot that could be written. Um, but really, the stronger things, the more interesting things, in my opinion, are the 1930s and 1940s and what was happening in wrestling. Um, I don't know if there's enough interest to justify going down that rabbit hole, though. I'm not sure. I might. Um, but uh wrestling fans i find that wrestling fans like the current product and, and maybe back a generation or so and then you have wrestling historians i haven't found one book that's really kind of crossed the board where you know 
casual fans will be interested in something that happened long ago. Um, so there, there's definitely enough material, but I haven't decided that I would try to chase that quite yet. Let's talk about Nickel City Drafts. I want to know how much research went into this book. Uh, was, I guess uh, maybe can you can you tell folks about Nickel City Drafts? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I did the uh, I did four books for Brian Meyer and Western New York Wares: uh, The Erie Canal, The Ditch That Opened the Nation, Body Slams in Buffalo. I did one called uh, Western New York 101: The 101 Greatest Moments in Buffalo History, and then I did Nickel City Drafts. And the idea with Nickel City Drafts is originally where wanted... where on the list of 101 greatest moments in Western New York history is uh, or, or bu- is it Buffalo history or Western New York history? It's Western New York history. Okay, yeah. where is Josh Allen um, being drafted? Is that is that made the list? It has. Well, if I redo the list, it might come in there probably in the just 80s or so. I might, if I off the top of my head, yeah, let's wait a little while. Let's just, yeah, exactly. Let's get some context <laughs> first. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, nickel city drafts, basically my idea was to do uh, a book at Buffalo's role in prohibition and really kind of focus on that. Um, Brian kind of said, I don't know if prohibition, it's such kind of a historical topic. I don't know if it will fit with our readers, maybe if we can broaden it. And I thought the idea, okay, well maybe just Buffalo's relationship to, to alcohol and just kind of looking at different eras, the Erie canal era the brewing history of Buffalo, the um, during prohibition and then post prohibition, post World War II. And uh, that's what uh, really kind of became uh, Nickel City Drafts, just looking at how this, this area, you know, kind of in Western New York, uh, the first building that was uh, established was basically a, a saloon. Uh, after the War of 12, after everything was burnt down, the first thing that was rebuilt was a bar, and the second building that was rebuilt was a church, which just kind of shows you the priorities in Buffalo. But it's also a matter of those old uh, taverns and bars were also used as social halls and in, where political meetings and hearings were often held. So the tavern and the bar was also like a hub within the community. And because of the different uh, ethnic groups that you had settling in Buffalo between uh, the Irish, the Germans, you had the Italians and the Polish in different areas, all came from these um, alcohol-rich uh, backgrounds. And that, that kind of all converged in Buffalo. And we have this really unique mix. Uh, so I kind of, you know, touched on a little bit of each of those. And that's where the re- a lot of the research was going to the oldest bars I could find in Buffalo and uh, finding out whatever I could about those places and, and their history, which was the most fun I've ever had researching the project. Do you have a favorite place that can, kind of emerged from this in terms of its history cool anecdotes, whatever it was that forms your maybe affinity towards any particular old, old school Buffalo establishment? I mean, Ulrich's is one, you know, but I think that what I found is, is just that I like to go to any of the older places. I mean, even like the, the Adam Mikachevich library and things where, you know, the, the, just the, the kind of door to get in they had the little camera used, used to be a speakeasy where you'd have to knock and they'd have to let you in and everything. Uh, I just like the older bars that have that kind of old feeling where you can just, you know, imagine that the people who have been there before and what they talked about and what the world was like when other people were having a drink there, just like you are that day. Warped floorboards are always good, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty common. There there are a handful of those in Buffalo. Yeah. Dan, what can you tell us about your wrestling career? (laughs) Oh, I forgot about that. My, my, uh, uh, no, I, okay. So, um, and have you ever wrestled Sean McDermott? 
Tom McDermott. No, I have not. <laughs> um, in 2002, I believe, uh, Empire State Wrestling uh, started up in Buffalo. Um, shortly after New York State kind of deregulated pro wrestling from the Athletic Commission and made it easier for the independents to run. Uh, they started up and it was a bunch of backyarders, basically, uh, self-trained guys. Um, and and they, they had a lot of passion, but they were just kind of learning, learning the ropes, right? Um, my book, Body Slams in Buffalo, had just come out. And uh, for their second show, somebody there had contacted me and said, hey, if you want to sell your book, you know, like, okay. So I went to the show at the, I think, the St. Johnsburg Fire Hall out in Wheatfield. And they drew about 250 fans, which at that time on the independents, there were very good independent shows that were drawing less than 100 people. Uh, so it was a lot of friends and family. And what these guys were doing is they had a ring and they were rehearsing their matches for weeks. So by the time they went out there, they looked good. You know, you wouldn't know that most of these kids, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, they'd only been doing it for six or seven months. They, they look pretty polished. Um, but they asked me to kind of get involved. I knew a lot of wrestlers in Ontario. I brought people in like uh, Danger Boy, Derek Wild, uh, Cody Steele, now Cody Diener from Impact Wrestling, uh, Beth Phoenix, uh, WWE Hall of Famer, um, and began working with the guys. Um, and eventually they asked me to become the booker because the guy who was kind of booking, uh, his wrestling name was Johnny Puma. He was the top guy and he felt really self-conscious about being the top guy and being the booker like the guys will resent me i'm just pushing myself but he was the right guy for that role at the time uh so anyway i became the, the booker of empire state wrestling and i to kind of win over the locker room i guess and because as a writer i wanted to do this if i was going to write about pro wrestling and, and 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 really know it i wanted to train and learn it not because i wanted to be a pro wrestler i mean maybe i did when i was a kid but I wanted to learn what a bump was and how to lift somebody and, and, you know, all of it. So I began training with the guys a lot. Um, you know, Beth Phoenix and some others there teaching us how to bump and do everything. And uh, eventually my thought to his booker was I would never ask a guy to take a bump. I wouldn't take myself. Uh, so I learned how to do everything. And uh, one day we needed a guy to, uh, we needed a, a guy named Shade he didn't have an opponent and he needed a win because we were kind of building him something for the next show. So I grappler X was born. I decided to try and come up with the most generic name. I could you know, black outfit, black mask. And, you know, it's just kind of the generic grappler. We did the most basic match ever. He beat me. And then whenever we needed somebody to kind of uh, sub in, I threw on the mask and did it. So I had one win. Uh, it happened to be for the, the tag titles. Uh, we did a match where myself, my partner, a guy named Purple Rain, we never got any offense. We were the conquistadors, but more comedy and did nothing. Uh, we just took a beating the whole match, and uh, we're laying in the middle of the ring. Our opponents both get up on the, the buckles on either side. One comes off with a senton. His opponent comes off with an elbow. We both roll. Mrs. Senton hits the opponent with the elbow. We get up and realize, oh, my God, the guy's down. We've never, we've never been on the offensive. We chuck the one guy over the top rope, both dive on him. One, two, three, we win the belts and the big upset. And then we lost him the next show. But yeah, so that was one of the, the short, happy career of Grappler X. Dan, uh, how familiar are you with, um, or how well did you know John Huber and how much he meant to the local Buffalo wrestling scene? I, I knew John really well. Um, Brody Lee, John Huber, uh, from Rochester. Um, he came, there was 
Empire State Luke Harper running. as well. In, in Luke Harper, WWE. right, yeah. Um, ESW was running in Buffalo. It was drawing bigger crowds. Uh, Rochester had New Millennium Wrestling uh, and then Upstate Pro Wrestling and everything. And th- those guys started coming over to Buffalo and like thinking, you know, we went to wrestling schools. We did this. How come these guys are, are drawing? We had this little, we started getting 300, 400 people per show uh, every month. And um, it was all very basic. You know, we weren't spending a ton on bringing in big stars. Uh, a couple of people would, you know, drive an hour maybe. Um, and, and they started coming around and I would go out there to just, you know, see what was going on. Uh, I met um, Brody when he was working as a Huber boy, number two, and it's an old backyard gimmick. He had, he used to be with his brother. He used to come out to a remix of the right stuff, you know, by the it, it, Backstreet Boys in sync, new kids on the block, right? New kids oh, on the block. Yeah. It's a but, good <laughs> and it, it was funny, but everything he did was comedy and it drove me nuts. It, it, it drove me nuts because I hated the gimmick and he had size, but at the time, he, he wasn't lifting a lot. So he didn't have, he wasn't in great shape. He had size, he had charisma, but here was a six foot three, four guy, you know, selling drop kicks from 110 pound guys and flying over the top ring. And it, like, I'm just, Oh, it's terrible. You know? So it took me a little while and uh, eventually he became big rig Brody Lee and he became kind of the trucker and grew into his look a little bit. And I remember kind of uh, saying, and I think he might've been a little bit, it pissed at me a bit because I never, you know, I was always like, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have the star quality. Uh, and I, when he became big rig, I, I remember having a talk with him out at pineapple jacks, I think out in Rochester, I'm like you, you've done it. Like, this is it. This is what you need to be. You're the big man. Now you got the big boot. You like the comedy is not for you. You can finally be a serious guy. And with you, the, the sky is the limit with that. And um, it was, obviously, I remember, you know, I remember where I was when he showed up in WWE TV as Luke Harper and, and just being so proud of a guy that like I worked with in Empire State Wrestling and I had knew, known since he was Huber Boy 2 and, and to finally develop his, his character and career to that point, it was just amazing to watch. And when he did pass, I mean, uh, I was kind of on the outside. I remember... Uh, I just watched a movie on Netflix and looked on Facebook afterwards and saw the outpouring of, you know, he had just died. And like a lot of other people, I didn't even know he'd been sick, had no idea. So it just absolutely stunned me because uh, I knew him and his wife and his son. And uh, he was a, a real credit to wrestling and just a great family guy. How close do you get to some of these guys? Oh my God. Um, some of them were some of my closest friends, you know, uh, you know, when I got married and a divorce now, but when I got married, a lot of the wrestlers were there at my wedding. And, um, I, because I did the women's 100, I would drive to uh, shimmer a couple times a year for their shows in Chicago. And I'd have a truck full of, of the girls who would drive with me and, you know, uh, they're, they're kind of become lifelong friends. Is that you why know? you got divorced in? <laughs> It probably, it probably didn't, uh, it didn't help. Yeah. Truck full of uh, women on your way to Chicago. That's it. You got Rosemary and Allie, the bunny cherry bomb and you know, everybody. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of great friends, you know, that, uh, um, the thing is the thing that's really odd about wrestling. And, and I don't know if it's like this with the NFL, but, um, guys that, you know, on the way up, they make it to the fed and I don't want to say they change, but once they get there, because everybody is now coming to them and 
you know, wanting their time, wanting whatever, they, they kind of put their walls up a little bit. And I always knew that. And kind of once somebody would go to the Fed, I kind of, I don't talk to them as often. But once they leave, that's when we kind of reconnect and, and kind of talked about the ride that they had when they were there, you know. So, but uh, yeah, I'm friends with a lot of them. And that's, that was one of the things that tied me to PWI more than anything else. Definitely more than the money was the, the friendships I made uh, through it all. Is Pro Wrestling Illustrated one of those magazines that was tied in with the ring and KO and yes. the boxing magazines, right? Well, I wrote for them and I know what they paid. So you had a passion and you have a passion for, for wrestling. Yeah. Well, I know, I know what they pay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, it was, I was paid per word, which, which is why I was able to, uh, well, it, it, originally PWI had, there was inside wrestling, the wrestler, uh, there's sports review wrestling for a little bit and PWI. So at one point we had like four different titles every month and then the superstars, which was quarterly and everything else. But I was probably doing four or five articles for each magazine. So yeah, each, you know, you're, you're getting paid by word and it's not a lot, but by volume, it, it can become something. Um, and that's when I finally uh, stopped writing and, and stepped down. Stu Sachs wrote a column and he said that he tabulated it and I had written uh, 1.3 million. He had the entire amount, the, the number of words I'd written for PWI. And they knew because they paid me by the word and could, you know, figure it all out. And said, you know, it'll, it'll, it's far more than anyone's ever written for the magazine. And with the current publishing schedule, it'll likely never be matched. So it's, I mean, that's something I put that on my headstone, I guess. <laughs> what do, you, do you, are you involved in any of what kind of what we see a lot in wrestling writing today, which is room, you know, the rumor roundups and the, the websites and the recast, but there's a ton of them. I mean, I, I guess what I'm asking is, is that a better business model than what, was previous in wrestling journalism or is it just out there because everybody wants to be, as you said, a armchair fantasy booker? I think that's maybe, I don't think it's a better model, but I'm not entirely sure. PWI, uh, we had, we, they resisted the urge to do a website for the longest time. They went full into, you know, the future is in print magazines. And as we know from everywhere else that that hasn't been the, the, the case. Uh, they did a website, but the website just kind of linked other content and had areas where you could order back issues in the print magazine. Uh, they did a version of the magazine through Zinio, where it's an electronic version and you can scroll through and, and do the pages. And that's kind of cool, but it, it never really picked up a lot of subscriptions, although it is a neat little uh, app. Um, right now, though, but the thing is, if it was coming out with PWI, it's kind of vetted in a way you know, somebody's looked at it, somebody's decided whether or not we're going to do this, you know, is this something that's going to get us sued? Is this libelous? Is this whatever? Um, a lot of stuff that's on the internet, people are just putting out stuff without any kind of fact checking or, or anything, you know? Um, so there's a ton more that's online and maybe they have models that work better. Uh, but PWI had, you know, corporate owner and, and subscribers and paid advertisers. So that model it worked. The magazine's still alive today. A lot of websites aren't. Dan, I've really enjoyed this and I wish you the best of luck on your, your upcoming books and, uh, and for those who, uh, that are still in print and you can pick them up. I know that, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble carries these books. Um, I've seen them on the shelves. In fact, I have uh, nickel city drafts. I can't remember where I bought it. It was a hazy night. 
<laughs> and in fact, I think the bartender bought it for me. I really? remember. Okay. Was it for sale at the Swanee house? It, not that I'm aware of, but it's possible. That's another bar I really do like. So they may have had it there. I'm trying to think of where I got it. I've never seen a book for sale at a bar other than maybe like a book signing type of event, but it's not like they don't have the pickled eggs and the chips and then books. <laughs> for, no, no, I'm pretty sure. For a while I did. I went to a few different bars and I, I say, you know, I write about, you know, here, here's, you know, five books on consignment, or if you want to, you know, buy them for, for, you know, uh, eight bu- or six bucks, whatever, and, and, you know, sell them for 10 and a few bars did agree to do it, you know, just as a little trial balloon. So yeah, it's possible. Not I don't remember Swanee house. house. I don't remember Swanee. I mean, it, it's nine years ago that I went and did that. Right. And each bar I went, I had a couple of beers. So, you know, who knows, but yeah, <laughs> well, I have it. And uh, anyways, uh, oh, you know what? We, we, I want to, the article that I, that, that I saw recently, it was written at uh, slam, mm-hmm. which is a Canadian website. Uh, they do a lot of sports and they also do uh, wrestling, a lot of wrestling because wrestling is huge in Canada. Um, oh no, this was slam wrestling. I'm sorry. I just misspoke. All right. Maybe I'll edit that out. <laughs> I was thinking it was Slam, the uh, the website that does um, the Sun Sports basketball. You know, I think no. I'm, there's a Slam.ca, which is a huge. Which I mean, you type it in now, and it, but anyways. Okay, I'm I'm not sure because they were with under Slam with under Canoe, and they did all the other sports and wrestling. Yeah, that's it. And, yeah, but then they just divested themselves and went separate. But it was the same thing for like the longest time. Okay, so I am talking about the right website. Yeah, you are. Right, okay. Well, you have uh, a uh, a horror book called The Thing in the River. And uh, tell us about that. So that's, I know we're talking about your wrestling book, The Wrestlers, uh, The Masters of the Craft, which is going to be coming out in April. Yes. But you have a a fiction book that's out right now. Uh, And what went into that and your... Uh, your decision to uh, to write fiction. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd had this idea for a little while uh, of just basically a, a kind of a, a monster, a thing in the river, in the Niagara River. And the idea, almost like a Call of Cthulhu or uh, as if there were something that was in the river that had always been there throughout known history that kind of called people to their deaths. You know, the suicides at Niagara Falls, drownings, things like that, that there's somehow this thing that almost magnetically pulled people that were wired a certain way into that. That's where they would go to die. Um, And I kind of developed the idea a little bit. I was kayaking on the river a few summers ago and it never happened to me before, but somebody bumped into me. I flipped over in the water, embarrassing, had to swim out to get the boat out. But I thought, you know, because that moment where you flip over and you're underwater and you're trying to figure out what's going on, it's, it's cold, you know, it's frightening. It's, it's something. And I thought that might be a great opening spot to start a kind of horror story, you know, because it's, it's visceral and it, it, you feel helpless in that moment. And that's where the story kind of came from. Uh, So it took me about a year, year and a half to write and edit and and work on. Uh, And then right around uh, this time last year, a little bit before I started looking for publishers because everything I had done before was nonfiction. Um, And I kept hearing back that a lot of places weren't accepting much because of COVID, you know, and after, you know, kind of not hearing, not hearing, I thought, you know, I I had taught some uh, community ed courses with the Kenton community education and had a lot of people ask me about self-publishing. 
And I didn't really have a lot to answer because I had never done it. I've always worked with publishers. I thought this might be a good chance to kind of kill two birds with one stone, like try self-publishing something and see, see what it's like. Uh, so I did, had a lot of trouble, problems with it, um, but eventually got it out and uh, it's, it's out on Amazon now. So uh, uh, put it all together and just kind of, it, it's like my COVID project, you know, uh, worked on it and got it all out this year, uh, the thing in the river and yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So it, it does make things freer, you know, I've had a lot of time, not a lot. I've had a few projects where I've gone to publishers and they've rejected it. And I thought, okay, maybe it's just a bad idea. I'll move on. Knowing now that there is the option of going down the road and self-publishing, it, it kind of opens a lot of doors where you can think, all right, maybe it may be a bad fit for that publisher, but maybe I can do this my own way and, and still see it through. Yeah, I'm guessing that there's a thought, though, when you do it uh, in traditional publishing, that there's some sort of safety net uh, to help and you just turn it over and then it becomes a book someday. But I, you sounded exasperated there when you said uh, the problems when you are on the hook for the cover design and, uh, you know, coming up with all of the production aspects of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that there could be a lot of headaches <laughs> that you need to be uh, you need to be ready to deal with. Yeah, I had a version and I, I, pr I had it printed and, and I got it and I read through it with uh, and I found a, a bunch of typos that had somehow gotten through. So I corrected them, uh, set it up for sale, and then I started getting feedback that all the typos were still there. And then I looked and the uncorrected version had gotten moved into production somehow. And it's, it's not as simple to just turn it off and make it not available. It took like a week and then I had to go in and clean it all up. And then for whatever reason, as I went back in, the cover image had been deleted. So I had to start over from scratch with the cover. So a lot of things that, I mean, working with the traditional publisher, there are, uh, you know, there are always uh, headaches too, but doing it on your own, they're, they're even worse. So I'd prefer to work with a publisher, but it's nice to know that there's another outlet out there. Well, you don't have to share a cut of all of the, uh, all of the revenues. Uh, so now you can get wealthy being a self-published <laughs> author. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> if everybody watching buys a few copies, it's amazing. There's a reason. There's present. a reason I haven't written books, man. Ed is intimidating. Uh, and so it's amazing. I admire you for having written however many it is now, seven, uh, four, five, seven. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. working, working on the eighth one, which will be the, uh, this is the thing that scares me is trying to do a biography, a biography of somebody whose heyday was 90 years ago, you know? So that's, that's definitely a, a challenge and a lot more research, but uh, I'm going to try it, you know, try and do just things. call them up. <laughs> Hold them directly. <laughs> Dan, thanks for doing this. I've enjoyed it and I feel a lot smarter now. Well, Hey, all right. Thank you very much. I'm glad that that worked out. That's Dan Murphy, <laughs> local author former uh, pro wrestling illustrated writer for 23 years ish Canisius college grad Cardinal O'Hara grad and uh, all around alum of the B newspapers <laughs> and the Tonawanda news and the Niagara Gazette and all that good stuff. Dan, thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks guys.